0: hello and welcome to pontifax
1: i'm fry and i'm Bree. ranking all of the popes from peter to francis and this is episode 23 pope cornelius oh, okay that's a old man name it, it is definitely an old man name and You know, we have been on a wild ride for the last couple popes. You know, we have had anti-popes and we've had martyrdom and we've had resignation and suspicious deaths and miracles and none of that is going to slow down anytime soon. So we're going to have a lot of those things in this episode. So are you ready to take on Pope Cornelius? Sure. Let's do it. Cornelius... Also referred to in some sources as Corneli, was born in Rome to Father Castidus. And this is gonna be a little different because his family was said to be quite distinguished and of the patrician status. At this time it didn't mean a whole lot more than being wealthy and influential or like part of the elite. Potentially he was even part of a noble family called the Cornelii, which, considering his name would be convenient and make a lot of sense, but just this whole patrician thing. We haven't really had a chance to discuss it because we haven't had any patrician popes yet. Briefly, just to kind of make sure that we're on the same page here, in ancient Rome, the way that it worked is you had two different classes. So you had the patricians and you had the plebs. And the patricians are, again, the noblemans, the elite, and they refer to the families that are descended from the original ruling elite that were senators at the founding of rome who were allegedly like appointed by romulus
0: i'm sorry i thought wolves were in charge of rome they were
1: and then patricians because you know wolves don't last that long it's just all popos all the way down maybe things would have gone better for them if it was popos Those are the patricians and everybody else is the plebs. So you could still be like super wealthy and really influential and still be a pleb if you have no member of your family that was part of that original class. But of course, we're so far past that point that it would be impossible to actually prove who the heck was actually a patrician from those noble families. Bearing that in mind, the fact that he actually gets to claim this means that his family is doing very, very well. Keep that in mind. I will. So passive-aggressive about it. At some point, he enters the church, and Cyprian tells us that he passed through all of the ecclesiastical offices. So we can assume that he's rising through the ranks at the time that the church is first dealing with the persecutions of Emperor Maximinus Thrax, where we see the resignation and death of Pontian, and then he's still growing as the persecutions under Decius happen, who, remember, is requiring every citizen across the whole Roman Empire to conduct a sacrifice or offer incense to the pagan gods, basically to be recorded on pain of torture and death. So, like we talked about last week, this leads directly to the death of Fabian, and the Christian leaders in the church, and Christians everywhere touched by the Roman Empire. And, as we talked about last week, after Pope Fabian dies, Decius had forbidden the election of a replacement for Fabian. So, the church was without a pope for 14 months. That's a long time. And this is where we're coming back into the story, because we have to deal with what was happening with the church in that time. Who, What was going on? How were they continuing to function? Because you can't just leave it empty and just wait it out. Something has to be happening for the church. So in this Sede vacante period that we've been talking about, The church was overseen by a quote-unquote college of priests who were riding out the persecutions as best they could, but obviously they were not safe either, and the chief choice who had been selected kind of as the future papal successor when they got to that point was a guy named Moses, and Moses gets killed at this time too, for the same reason that Fabian did. Not so good for Moses. (laughs)
0: There's a point there where you have to be like, yeah, I guess I will uh cut open a animal just so nobody murders me.
1: Oh, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. It's You have just touched it with a pin. Yes, uh, we can assume at this time that probably Cornelius would have been part of this college that was running the church in the absence of the Pope. As was the bishop that we discussed last week, Novation. In fact, uh, Eamon Duffy's book, Saints and Sinners, says Novation played a leading role in the running of the church at this time. Where'd he go? (laughs) He went some places. You're just gonna hit on every single point in advance now. You're getting the hang of
0: this. (laughs) I stopped being sick. That's what happened. It's perfect. Because you're just
1: gonna, like, brush past all of them. It's kind of like, is it beheading? Obviously, you know, they're they're doing their thing the best that they can. Some of them are still being killed. It's not a good time. But eventually, the persecutions start to slacken or they get more spotty because the emperor had more important things to worry about, namely the Goths.
0: I absolutely know that it's not Richmond coming over a
1: hill, but I was hoping you would go there. Eventually, by March of 251, the emperor would leave for Moesio with his son and his army to fight, and he would never come back. And the church jumped on the opportunity of the absent emperor and quickly convenes an election for the college to replace Fabian. And on either March 6th or 13th of that year, as Cyprian puts it, Cornelius was elected by the judgment of God and of Christ, by the testimony of almost all the clergy, by the vote of the people then present, by the consent of aged priests and good men, at a time when no one had been made before him, when the place of Fabian, that is, the place of Peter, and the step of the sacerdotal chair were vacant. What fortitude in his acceptance of the episcopate! What strength of mind! What firmness of faith! that he took his seat intrepid on the sacerdotal chair at a time when the tyrant in his hatred of bishops was making unspeakable threats than that of a bishop of God was appointed at Rome. That was such a large sentence to be like, hey... Mmm, Cyprian talks a lot. Don't want him at a party. He talks so much, and the people that he feels strongly about... If you are in the good graces of Cyprian, you will be remembered so well, and if you are not, ooh, it gets a little hypocrisy, so. We now know that, based on this lovely paragraph by Cyprian, that the election was pretty much almost unanimous, but it is also said that Cornelius initially resisted the outcome and was elected unwillingly. A no-pope. Yeah, he he's a, he's a bit of a note pope, but I mean, can you blame him? Who would want to be pope in this time when the church is in disarray and so many popes are dying for being pope? Who would want that? Not me. Well, Novation wants that. Oh yeah, him. Novation 100% thought that this election was his. And again, just like Hippolytus, we now have a huge problem to deal with when somebody doesn't get elected when they want to. Is Novocaine the next anti-pope? Maybe. (laughs) But before we get to that, uh, we need to talk about why these two are kind of at odds. Because there is a major, major, major sticking point between these two men. Not just the fact that Novatian thought he was going to get the election. There is a major issue that they're fighting about here. Do you want to guess? Probably sacrificing things. You hit it. So. The argument that is dividing the church at this moment is directly tied to those persecutions, and it boils down to this. How does the church handle Christians who, in the face of death and torture, chose to follow the sacrifice orders? How is the church going to respond to people who temporarily apostatized from their religion to save their lives, rather than saying yes to martyrdom? These people are doing this, just like you said, you know, at some point you kind of go, yeah, I'm gonna do this thing to save your life. And now the bishops are arguing about how to deal with that. There are a few bishops who argue that the lapsi, which is what we'll refer to them from now on, the the people who apostatized, but were Christians and still did the sacrifice. These are the lapsi. So there's a few bishops who argue that these people should be brought back into the church immediately with no conditions. It just, it never happened. Ignore it entirely. Those are the most liberally minded bishops. And it wasn't a super popular position.
0: Weird, because a couple of popes ago, they were like, you can totally eat sacrificed animals. Just take them off that altar and numb them.
1: Yeah, and I mean, we had Calixtus who was like,
0: adultery and murder, it's okay. And total forgiveness of pretty much everything there.
1: But we have to remember that idolatry, which is a a sacrifice to a pagan god at an altar, is idolatry. And that is like the cardinal sin for these people. So I think that's number one. This is a little bit more problematic. So we have the bishops that are arguing that like, let's just forget it ever happened. Welcome them back. Then we have Cornelius, who is more moderate, and he believes that the Lapsi should absolutely be restored to the church and to communion, but that they would have to undertake a period of penance that was adequate to show their repentance for their actions. And most importantly, Cornelius felt that they must be welcomed back, because to deny those who had faltered in their faith but were still alive would only weaken the church. So he's fighting hard for this, but he believes that it comes with penance.
0: Well, I mean, that's still welcoming them back at a certain point.
1: Yeah, exactly. And this is the main moderate position, and he's supported by this in our main source for the period, who is Cyprian. Um, And we should mention now, because we're going to keep coming back to Cyprian, that he's the Bishop of Carthage. And... This was also supported by the Eastern bishops and the African bishops. So they're all on board with welcoming them back, but making them do penance. Novatian, on the other hand, was not at all about this thing. He was like, nope, you cannot be accepted back under any circumstances because you had committed idolatry and apostasy, and that's unforgivable. And he takes it to the next level and argues that the church didn't actually even have the authority to forgive those who were guilty of being a lapsi. And only God had that right. Repentance or not, they cannot come back. Wow. Yeah. You should have died, bro. Well, and this is where I have to stop and say for a second, um, everyone who is in the church having this debate are only alive because they haven't been called up yet. So they've managed to just avoid being brought for this offering yet. They've escaped persecution and martyrdom by pure luck. So why are they so judgmental? It boggles my mind. He, he's very holier-than-thou, self-righteous garbage. So this is Novatian, <laughs> Of course. So we have two completely separate ideas here that do not jive. Like, there is no middle ground. You can't those those ideas are not going to be reconciled and then cornelius has the most support and is elected pope because most people agree with him so novatian refuses at this point to accept cornelius as pope and appoints himself to the position instead anti-pope number 2 <laughs>
0: we don't even have to have like a filler episode for next month. It's just I guess this month.
1: We're going to we're going to hit those anti-popes every month that they come up in our story and uh not to be too spoilerific, but there's pretty much one a century, so we should be good. But anyways, we have anti-pope number 2. And he's not alone because he is supported in his self-declaration of popedom by three bishops who agree to consecrate him and interestingly enough he's also supported by most of the minor clergy wow within rome who are these where why these are like the this is the minor clergy in rome specifically and it seems that kind of taking this morally rigorous position he's actually drawing in a lot of people who had been supporters of Hippolytus originally.
0: Oh, okay, just some Hippolytus ons
1: Yeah, and we can assume, of course, this is, you know, we see Novatian expanding on his ideas on what made an apostate ineligible to rejoin the church to include Hippolytus's old arguments basically saying the church didn't have the authority to forgive those sins of murder, adultery, idolatry, and remarriage. Now that last one is a new one, but clearly Novatian was really into being a rigorist and keeping all of those pure human beings in the church and no one else. But this isn't to say that Novatian had the majority of the support, even though he had most of the minor clergy, because we still have The election showing a majority favor, Cornelius, and he couldn't have gotten there on his own. So he has his own support among the bishops of Africa, of which there are about a hundred. There's 60 bishops in Italy. There's the Bishop of Alexandria, St. Dionysius, who brought most of the East on side, and of course, critically, Cyprian, Bishop of Carthage. Carthage is pretty big. Carthage is, is very big, and he... He basically Africa will do what Cyprian says, so big deal we now have a full-blown schism on our hands, and things are going to get messy and we're going to see this get messy in a a little bit of a different way than what happened with Hippolytus, so both Cornelius and Novation begin to write letters to the significant Christian bishops to defend their own positions and their claims to the papacy so I mean, there was a small group that got together to elect this pope. There, It wasn't the full expanse of, like, bishops from all over. So this is contentious, and now they have to write to all of those bishops who weren't there and say, who do you support? And it gets uglier because both men start to appoint bishops. Cornelius is appointing new bishops to replace the ones he knew supported Novatian, And Novatian is appointing bishops to compete against the official ones who maintain their support of Cornelius. And basically, he wanted to create a rival congregation in every city to the official bishops. He managed to appoint bishops in Arabia, Antioch, Bithynia, Caesarea, Cilicia, Cappadocia, Syria, Jerusalem, Mesopotamia, Tarsus, Tyre, Ladocia. Pontus, and in Carthage, where Novatian appointed a man called Felicimus to go toe-to-toe with Cyprian. But he lost. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, he did. So <laughs> we could say things are not looking good at the moment for the church, and Cornelius has to find a way to to get this under control and, and really so- solidify his own support if he wants to remain the official consecrated pope. And, I mean, maybe he didn't actually want to do this, but now that somebody was challenging him, he's like, it's on! So, he convenes a synod in Rome, calling the Western bishops to attend, and confirm their positions on three issues, so that we know where everybody stands. The first issue is to affirm that he is the true and rightful successor of Peter, The second is to confirm that the position of the Lapsi Christians could rejoin the church after medicines of repentance. And three, to excommunicate Novatian and his followers. Yeah, good, do that. So the 60 bishops from Italy and the surrounding area all come to the synod. This is the conclusion they come to, and the decrees are drafted up. And at this time, the other bishops who weren't able to attend but support the outcome also sign their support to these decrees. And then this document is sent all over the Roman Empire, everywhere that there is a founded Christian church. And usually it was sent with a attached with a personal letter, particularly to Fabius, the Bishop of Antioch because he's an extremely influential bishop in the East, and he had clearly declared his support for Novatian. So Cornelius is like, here's my decree saying I'm the real pope. I'm looking at you, Fabius, get in line. And this is the official stance of the church. Novatian and his followers are no longer part of the Catholic Church, and his followers are anathematized. We're not going to deal with their story right now, but... Needless to say, this did not deter Novatian or his followers, and this schism is nowhere near over, and Novatianism will exist and be a thorn in the side of the church for centuries. We will cover Novatian in a lot more detail in our bonus episodes on Patreon, so sign up for that because I think that one's going to be really good. But, you know... We're not talking about Novatian anymore. We need to talk about Cornelius and the other things he did as Pope. And what's really cool and super unique for this time period is we actually have letters from Pope Cornelius that have actually survived. Oh, good. We have a letter to Fabius of Antioch talking about Novatian and an exorcism that had apparently been done on Novatian, but that's for the bonus episode. That sounds like a wild ride. Oh, it's gonna be a story. This is also the first time that there's ever a mention in writing of the role of exorcist actually existing in the church. We've talked about, you know, that position may or may not be being created at this point. But now we actually are talking about an exorcism and an exorcist. So that's pretty interesting. We also have two letters to Cyprian, of course, and we have nine letters that cyprian wrote to cornelius as well and these letters cornelius's letters and cyprian's letters make it so that cornelius's papacy is one of the best documented that we have in the whole of the early church so good job cyprian this is a seculari impactum historian bias bonus point for making sources easy so Fortunately, we're not going to read the letters here because they're long, but I have a link to an English translation for anybody who wants to read them, and we will put it in the show notes. Now, what interests historians in particular about these letters is that it seems that Cornelius wrote in vulgar Latin, which is essentially the colloquial spoken Latin that would have been known by, like, the everyday man rather than writing in what would be classical, formal Latin that you generally would see from theologians and the highly educated. This is a little bit weird that he's writing in vulgar Latin, but he's supposed to be from a very distinguished and well-off patrician family, so this kind of cast doubt on maybe his heritage or his parentage or that patrician status, because we can assume if he had been educated on the level that would have been expected of his class— that it would be formalized Latin, but it's not.
0: Nah, it's like those professors on Tumblr who just type
1: whatever. Mm Mm-hmm. Extremely conversational. The other thing that's really valuable about these letters is that we get actual numbers for the size of the church in Rome and what the scale of the administration was. You know, we've been talking every episode about ordinations hosted by every pope But with uh, the position turnover and deaths and new positions being created all the time, we couldn't have gotten an accurate number, even if we added up all of those numbers, to hard statistics of what was actually the size of the church at this point. And we have the conflict with Novation to thank for this, because we actually have it listed in these letters very clearly, that Cornelius is outlining exactly how much support he had in the face of the schism. So let's look at these numbers. All right. At this time in the church, specifically in Rome, quote, this avenger of the gospel did not know that there should be one bishop in a Catholic church, yet he was not ignorant, for how could he be, that in there there were 46 presbyters, 7 deacons, 7 subdeacons, 42 acolytes, 52 exorcists readers and janitors and over 1500 widows and persons in distress all of whom the grace and kindness of the master nourish so this tells us a lot about the early church more than we could have ever known otherwise the the size of what rome's administration looks like we see that the church is supporting widows um And from these numbers, scholars have gone on to project, like, what the actual number of Christians could have been at that time living in Rome. Did they combine exorcist with janitor? And readers, yep. Those are similar jobs, I guess. Cleaning the soul, cleaning the bathroom, you know, it's all good.
0: You said 52 exorcists, and I was like, that's a lot. And then it was, like, janitors, though, and I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) Yep. And reading. I don't know what that has
1: to do. Of cleaning the bathroom either. They're sort of like miscellaneous, but they felt that that would have been condescending to say. Might have been better. Could you imagine going down in history as miscellaneous? Well, I mean, it's kind of already confusing. Why are the janitors with the exorcists? Maybe they were on the same level at that time. We don't know. Maybe they're the same person. <laughs> oh my god. Well, again- Cleaning a bathroom and cleaning someone's terribly corrupted soul, maybe they're similar. Kind of gross. Well, I mean, demons, man. They're pretty gross. They're pretty gross. Going back to the idea of these, how many Christians can we extrapolate from this as living in Rome at this time? So we have Gibbon, a very notable Roman historian from the 1700s, He estimates that these numbers would allow for a Christian population of 50,000, which if we project a population of Rome being approximately 5 million, which is the rough estimate by scholars, then that's about 1%. There are other historians like Benson and Harnack who think that's probably a bit overestimated, but it does give us at least some idea of scale of the growing religion which is still making its mark, despite the fact that the emperors are just trying to murder them all. So, good on them for making up the 1%. So we also have one little strange addition from the Liber Pontificalis that doesn't show up anywhere else, and it's just kind of weird. And it says, With the help of St. Lucina, Cornelius transferred the remains of the princes of the apostles, Peter and Paul, to places of greater honor. We have no further evidence to suggest that Cornelius was moving people around or that Peter was moved anywhere at all or where this new place of high honor is and it's just the Liber Pontificalis, so it's garbage, so. They love their weird garbage. They they sure do. Now, while all this was going on for the church, the rest of the Roman world had figured out that Emperor Decius and his son had been killed by the Goths in the Battle of Abritus. And a new emperor had been declared by the soldiers, Gallus. And Gallus restarts the Christian persecutions again. And one reason that is cited for this is that in 252, Rome breaks out in plague. And what do you do when disaster strikes? You blame people. Yeah, you blame the Christians. What sort of plague? Like, the plague. Actually, we probably... historians actually... Suggest that it's most likely smallpox. I mean, if you look at the history of the world, smallpox is the most deadly disease that has ever happened to human society, so it's worse than the Black Plague and everything else, so probably, and we're gonna get there when we deal with the Justinian Plague and all of those things, but... Thanks for being eradicated, smallpox. Yeah, hopefully it stays that way, because there are still some active vials in the world. Gallus has restarted these persecutions, but he doesn't seem to have had the frenzy and intensity that Decius had, and that's probably because he was never able to give it more attention than just resurrecting the orders and ordering them to be carried out in a very spotty and uncoordinated sort of way. Nevertheless, as the head of the church, Cornelius is the first target of this new persecution. Oh no. Yeah.
0: He had gone so long, he had
1: skirted under, limboed his way through for quite some time here. But it seems that Gallus wasn't immediately all for death the way that Decius had been, because instead of an immediate death, what we see is Cornelius sent into exile. Not to the mines, to exile. Just about? Yeah. So he is sent away to Sentumcelle or Civitavecchia, as it is known now, which is a seaport in the Lazio region. Which, if you look at like geographically today, is just outside of Rome.
0: Okay, so it's not like he sent him into the desert or something. No, it's it's far enough to be
1: a problem, but it's it's still fairly close.
0: But it's not like an inhospitable place. He didn't get sent to Siberia,
1: right? Right. This is this is a. This is a gentle exile, so... A soft exile. Cyprian tells us that unlike with the Decian persecutions, this round of persecutions saw no Christians defect from their religion. Well? Well, what he says is that the Pope led his brethren in confession, and with one heart and one voice, the whole Roman church confessed. And the next section of my note says, And then Cornelius dies! In the seaport, though. It's not an instant death persecution, but death, nonetheless. Accounts differed on the exact method, because what challenge would it be at this point if we knew exactly how a pope died? I mean, Uh, I just want to know. If he was martyred directly by execution, it was a beheading, but there are just as many sources that say it was like the hardships of extreme treatment. Either way, he died in banishment in June of 253. And by the way, Cornelius will be buried at the Catacombs of Calixtus. He's not in the Chapel of the Popes, but he is in the Tombs of Calixtus. And he's very nearby the Chapel of the Popes, but he's in what is now thought to be a family tomb of the Cornelii. Oh, he didn't even get to go in the Pope thing because he
0: had, like, a outstanding
1: plot already? Yeah, probably. I mean, it's very common for them to have these family plots if they're wealthy and noble, so yeah. He gets to go there, and another thing that sets his burial apart is that his tomb marker was inscribed in Latin rather than Greek, like the last few that we've looked at. So again, Latin is becoming the language of the church, and all it says is Cornelius Martyr.
0: But that would be more like of the faith martyr and not directly martyr. Exactly. You
1: know that token martyrdom. But like most popes, Cornelius's remains won't remain in the catacombs. And in this case, I think it's safe to say that Cornelius's adventures are not over. (laughs) Is this going
0: to be like, you know, where someone's like, here's a stuffed bear, take pictures of it in
1: places? A little bit. Wherever he might have ended up after the Calixtus Catacombs, we know at some point during the medieval period, maybe around like 875, said one source, the relics of Cornelius, including his head, are packed up and taken to Germany. Because that's where popes go. Specifically, he goes to Cornell Munster in Aachen and the cloister there. Originally, this cloister was called the Redeemer Cloister on the Indus and was founded by a Benedictine monk at the behest of Louis the Pious. But when the relics arrived, the cloister then became known as the Sancte Cornelii ad Indum, or Saint Cornelius on the Indus. And today, it is called the Abbey of St. Benedict of Eddian and Pope Cornelius. And as far as I can determine online, they still have his head. They didn't give his head back. Yeah. Okay. And they probably did have his head because he becomes a feature of the area, in a way. The featured head of the area. (laughs) Pope Cornelius is known as one of the four holy marshals which were four saints that were specifically venerated in the Rhineland in the 15th century. Not quite like patron saints, but sort of, kind of. uh, These saints were considered special and thought to be that much closer to God, specifically when it came to matters of the Rhineland. So they could be invoked for intercession in matters of disease or specific illnesses or to war to show their favor, and each were given a special thing to be a patron over. Spoiler: We will we will talk about what Cornelius is is in the canon bonus round, but yeah, so he's part of the four holy marshals of the Rhineland. All right, extra special just to tick all the boxes. The four marshals are Pope Cornelius, Corinius of Nuce, Hubertus, and Saint Anthony the Great. But this is not all that we have for Cornelius in Germany. He's really big in Germany in the Middle Ages. Is he David Hasselhoff of popes? <laughs> Pretty much. I couldn't even get that out. And that means it's time for miracles. Miracles. So there is a legend about him in the town of Noose in Westphalia, which is in the area where he's considered to be one of these four holy marshals. And the story goes that there was this young artist in the town who was commissioned to paint the Cornelius Capelle, which is the chapel bit to commemorate this pope. And while he's working, he meets a local girl, and the two of them fall in love. Of course. Of course. So the girl's father refuses to allow a marriage to take place, and probably thinking that he was very clever, he says he would never consent to the marriage unless Pope Cornelius himself did. Well, apparently, the statue of Cornelius then supposedly leans forward and blesses the couple that wish to be married. And that shut up, old dad, super good, and the couple was married. That's some
0: Jonathan Strange and Miss Norrell both right there. But we're not done. He's also
1: got a miracle story in Brittany. Alright, what's he do? Have you ever seen the Carnac stones? No. I'll show you a picture here. I thought I had one saved, but I don't. Google it for me. Yeah, I'm gonna Google this for you, and here is the picture for you. No. What? No, I haven't seen those at all. So there are these huge megalithic stones, and there are 3,000 of them collected and placed in remarkably straight lines that were more than likely put in place by Neolithic pre-Celts around 4500 BC, which make them potentially older than Stonehenge.
0: That's, um, some dedication. Yep. Yeah. That's, a, like, a lot of work
1: there. It is. It really is. However, if we're to take miraculous legend at face value, then they're definitely not that old, because they were once pagan soldiers. Oh. Pagan soldiers that were turned to stone by Pope Cornelius when he was running away from them in Brittany, where he never went. So, of course, this in the mythology explains the orderly lines, because we know that Roman legions were trained to perfection, so... (laughs) <laughs> there, There is uh, no evidence whatsoever that Cornelius was ever in Brittany, but he's big there, so there you go. Kind of looks like a really big fingerprint. Kind of does. Although, that would be a very bad fingerprint to try and get away with crimes with, because you'd stand out in a heartbeat. Look, it's a giant fingerprint on the
0: side of a hill. You're not very inconspicuous. So now,
1: we get to rate him. Are you ready? Yeah, let's go. Papatum infallium. Okay, so we need to start this with the policy on the lapsi. In the good column, it is the policy that is adopted by the official church. He sets the standard for Catholic dealings with sinners and forgiveness and absolution. He makes the church universal in accepting all of those with faith rather than just those who are willing to be martyrs. He's identified as the first in a large ongoing conflict, which will be holy versus Catholic viewpoint. So there's that. So that's in the good column. In the bad column, it creates a schism that will be with the church for a long time. It will establish itself across the empire and challenge the church for the future. And I don't know, maybe you want to say he wasn't strong enough to stand against Novation and end it right there. I don't know. I lean more towards the good. Yeah, I can't I can't fault him for
0: someone else being a jerk. Honestly, um he did what the his predecessors would have wanted him to do. The precedent was set.
1: It does, and it is this idea that that all sins can be forgiven and you can be a Christian at any point in your life. So there's that. Um we have a couple more points on him. It's the first mention of exorcism that we really have in the church. So maybe there's a thing there. Um, he's also clearly a significant figure in the church. He's still huge in Germany.
0: Yeah, well, Germany likes weird things.
1: Uh, yeah, they do. What do you want to give him? Let me give him a seven. Okay, I was going to give him a six, so I'm going to stick with my six to give him a 13 for Papatum and Valium. How
0: unlucky. Directly before Halloween.
1: Yes! Fructus prohibitum! So, we have one mention of trouble between Cornelius and Cyprian which says, the friendship of Cornelius and Cyprian was strained for a time when one of Cyprian's rivals made accusations about him. But the problem was cleared up. No more information about this, but I would be disappointed if he believed something bad about the man writing about him like a fanboy. So, so we can't really give him anything for that, but it's just an interesting point.
0: But I definitely want to give him like three points for the schism
1: there. You want to give him scandal points? Well, let's, let's look at how he handles Novation because This is kind of scandalous, because in Cornelius's letters, we have him writing about Novation very maliciously and bitterly. Like, some of the stories that he accounts about Novation in these letters come across not as him trying to condemn what Novation's doing, but they seem like libel and gossip. He doesn't like Novation at all. Okay. And I mean... I'd be mad if somebody was challenging my papacy too, so I get it, but it does come across very, like, mean girls gossip. I am going to give him a couple points for that, but I think um, it's going to be a one or a two. Uh,
0: I'll still give him a three, because we gave uh, gave Peter a five for being a big old douche. But he was a big old douche to everybody.
1: You rated Peter so high, I don't even think it was a five. You gave Peter a ten. Well, I'm gonna give Cornelius a one for for the for the gossipy letters, so that gives him a four. Seculari impactum. The letters from him and from Cyprian makes this one of the most documented early popes, and he gives us church statistics. So those are two historian points that he's getting from me. And then the other thing that we need to consider is that he's literally making legends all over. He's got the stones of Karnak and like making things happen in Germany. So
0: I can give him a few points. I don't want to give him a ton, maybe like four. All right, I'll give him a four too. His head's still there. I suppose we could probably go see it if we ever wanted to go to Germany. I would so go to Germany again. Germany is lovely,
1: but um I looked for it online. I tried to see if anybody had posted a picture of it. No such luck. But it's there. Like, could we visit it? As far as I could determine, it's still there. But there was no source that said, "Come see Cornelius's head." So, how many people actually want to see Cornelius's head? Man, like if you go across Europe, there's there's saint's bodies everywhere and relics, man. So I would not be surprised. But that gives him an eight for secular impactum.
0: Fossium sanctus.
1: Okay, this is a category in which we have things to look at, okay? So, here is his photo. It's small that we're going to rate him on. Here we go.
0: Yes, that's a photo for ants.
1: I couldn't find a bigger one. Um, that's That's him. And if you're having a hard time rating off of that one, I'm going to give you this one. I think we can make an exception this time. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. This is what we're gonna raid on. Oh no! <laughs> that looks like comic book guy from The Simpsons. Well, what do you, what do you think? That lovely depiction of his lazy eye and bubbly tonsure and like worst photo ever. So, what do you want to give him? I let's give him a one fuck.
0: I would give him a one for that. I mean, even the one above it, the small one, he has like a double, a double brow bone going on there.
1: Can you even see that? Do you see it? No, not really. But I will take your word for it. I'm going to give him a one as well. So 0.5 for Facsim Sanctus. But we are not done because we have a relic of Pope Cornelius. What is it? Is it bone? I think it's a, a fragment of bone that's in there. Okay. I just kind of like this because it looks a lot like what we had for Clement's bones.
0: Yeah, yeah, except that one's not in the
1: trash. And then we have this. We have, he he is hanging out in Brittany as a statue.
0: Ooh, someone painted that statue. They made some choices.
1: Why is there a dog? No, that's a cow. Because he's the patron saint of cattle. Spoilers. Oh, okay. All right, we have one more thing to look at. And we talked about how the Cornelius Capella probably has his head today. Well, if they do have his head, it's probably in this because he has a reliquary. Oh. That is a look. <laughs> that is a look. I love it. Honestly, it is, it's so gaudy. It's... Made out of, I'm fairly certain that that's silver, because that's a thing that they did with holy figures at a point, is they would just emboss things in silver. His cheekbones are so sharp. So sharp. (laughs) And, I mean, this crown, this papal tiara. It's huge. I just need
0: that in my life. Can I wear something like that? (laughs) It looks like something you'd buy on QVC. Oh, totally. Totally. If they have his head,
1: that's probably what it's in. So, yeah.
0: Is it big enough for a head? Maybe the head's in the chest part.
1: Well, I mean, if you look at everything that's kind of around it, you can get a, a, like, a reference point. And so if they have his, I mean, if they have his head, it's just the skull. It could probably definitely fit in that head shape. It's it's big enough. All right. If
0: you say so, all I see are flowers next to it, and those are some honking big flowers.
1: Well there's the candle behind it and there's kind of the 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 thing that's what do they call that like on the altar they always have like the big table thing behind him. Do you see? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that thing. <laughs> Point of reference. Yeah, it seems like it could be big enough. But I mean if you've been there anyone let us know and we might have to to change that. Tempus Pontificus. So he either reigned from the 6th or the 13th of March in 251 to June 253, which gives him two years for a score of 0.5. That's it? Two years, three months, and ten days, to be very specific. I bet a lot of stuff happened to him. Mm-hmm.
0: All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! Do-do-do-do-do!
1: So yes, he is a saint. He has a feast day on September 16th, which he shares with his fanboy, Cyprian. Now, it used to be September 14th. That's Deacon Dad's birthday. Ooh, so maybe this needs to be his new favorite patron saint. <laughs> maybe. And Jerome said that this was the anniversary of both Cyprian and Cornelius's martyrdom. But the 16th has been considered more accurately now, and it may also be the day that his body was interred in the catacombs, so it's the 16th now. Now, he is a patron saint of cows, like we talked about. His name literally means battle horn, so he's been associated with cows and cows' horns forever. He has relics in Germany, like I just showed you a picture of, but that's not all. He is the patron saint of lovers in the Rhineland. Hearing trouble and earaches because of the horns. You know, the curved warhorns look like ear horns for people. He's the saint of farmers and cattle. He is invoked against epilepsy, cramps, affliction of the nerves, fear, and twitching.
0: The next time your period gets real bad,
1: yell at this man. <laughs> yes. Invoke him. Okay. And that brings us to his final score. Which is a very even 27. Ooh, not bad score. That's literally .5 points behind Pope Fabian last week. Nice. That's good. Good job, Cornelius. So now, that leads us to ask the most important question. Is he Popey? Is he pizzazzy? Is he worthy of a papal bull? I'm gonna feel real bad.
0: Saying no. You don't think so? To the man, the cow man, about not giving him a
1: cow? Yeah, that's true. So you're not, you're not, you're not swayed by him? I'm not swayed. That's fair. I understand. I, I feel more strongly about him presenting his life than I did researching his life. I mean, but compared to someone like Fabian, it's just... A little odd. It's not. It's not particularly like. Oh my God! This is the story I want to tell you about popes. So yeah. No, I'm sorry, Cornelius. You don't have it. But this does not bring us to the end of our episode, because we have a pope. Yes, Pope Watch. Fry. Mm Hmm. I'm here to tell you that Pokemon Go Jesus Edition is live. Ah, yeah. People spoiled me so hard. I know. I was trying to keep this a secret from her, and I told her not to look on social media, and uh, it just it could not be avoided. So, Absolutely could not. At least four different people were like, this, though. I know. I know. And we got tagged in it so many times on Twitter, which is why I banned you from Twitter for the day,
0: but... Like, three days at that point, you were like, don't get on Twitter. Don't look at it.
1: I tried, guys. I tried. I wanted her to be surprised, but... I also... So I went to go
0: see if I could download it to see how many saints I would get. Apparently, it's only for Spanish-speaking countries, which we are not in. Apparently, Italian,
1: English, and Portuguese are in development next, but we'll get there. What about me? I'm going to tell you all about this thing, okay? So... Yes. First statement we need to make is this is not directly connected with the Vatican, but... Reportedly, Francis has given it his blessing, and he's totally into it. So, we're counting it. So, here we go. According to the original source, which is an Italian newspaper called the Corriere della Serra, a Florida-based Catholic group called the Foundation Ramon Pane has developed this mobile app game, directly inspired by Pokemon Go, called Follow JC Go. And this will allow users to collect saints and Marian devotions and other important biblical figures to add to their own evangelization team. So this app, Follow JC Go, cost $500,000 to develop through private donations and sponsorship. And it was presented at the October meeting of bishops as part of their discussion on using technology as an evangelization tool targeting the youth of the world with the hopes that it will get a full rollout at World Youth Day in Panama in January. Apparently, Pope Francis thought this was a great idea, and we have a quote from Ricardo Gronza, who is the executive director of the group who made the game, and he said, You know, Francis is not a very technological person, but he was in awe. He understood the idea, what we were trying to do, combine technology with evangelization. Now, Obviously, this is not a combat game where you battle your saints or try to evolve Jesus. I would like to evolve Jesus. But you will collect the saints by answering important spiritual or philosophical questions, or questions from the Bible, or... Uh, Oh, no. Yeah. It's like, um, Mario is missing. But you can level up your characters by hitting the three basic needs of survival, which are eating for nutrition drinking for hydration, and prayer for spirituality. Okay, you don't need a house. Nope, you don't. You need prayer, food, and water. You can also go and perform charitable works, and the game will encourage you to visit churches that you pass. So if you want to play the game and you speak Spanish, it's available for both Android and iOS, only in Spanish. And on that note, we need to finish the show with thank yous. Our first thank you is a Patreon thank you for someone who needs their temporal punishments absolved so thank you manfred lights i hope i said that right i'm going with german pronunciation tell me if i was wrong ego te absolvo and we also want to thank totalis rancium for supporting us and doing our art and if you have not been on our facebook page and seen our scorecards for the popes that rob has done Go check them out. I just updated them up to Pope Antares.
0: I I looked through the album and then I, seeing them in the flesh and what we put on there, some of those patron saints things, we are just wild. We are, we are totally wild, and I will not apologize for it. But seeing it on like a card and like an official statement,
1: it's a you cannot weird. be ashamed. It's too late. It's too late. We have committed to this, so my sins are aired in the open. <laughs> also, of course, thank you to Rex Factor, our original inspiration for this podcast, and to Ryan Stitt of the History of Ancient Greece, who is again posting our episode every week and bringing us followers. If you have found us from an interesting source, if you found us from another podcast. Uh, if you found us from a website or whatever, let us know so we can make sure to thank people because we're now getting people coming in and saying that they found us on sources we didn't even know were talking about us. Yeah, absolutely.
0: It's hard like I I usually do like a Google search and try to see if I can pick up like weird like someone's blog about cheese and pontifax, which is which is something I found once. Yep. Uh, but also what I haven't been picking up anything new really this whole month. So
1: But apparently there are places where we are, so you should let yeah. us know so that we can thank them. It's
0: it's super awesome. We can be found on most major catching platforms, including Spotify. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook as Pontifax Pod. Feel free to message us. We usually always respond. If you want to send us a more long-form message, request, or otherwise get a hold of us, our email is pontifaxpod at gmail.com. For our bonus episodes and exclusive content, head over to our Patreon page and donate. That's patreon.com forward slash pontifaxpod. If you feel the need to buy us a tea, because we're not really coffee drinkers, but we do love tea, you can throw us a few bucks in our PayPal account at paypal.me forward slash pontifaxpod. As always, please subscribe and rate and review on iTunes or whatever you use. It really helps us get recommended to other people and allows more people to find us.
1: Thank you very much if you are listening. Thank you to all of the people who have gotten you here. And goodbye. Bye.